Okay, because I am an outstanding father, I am rightly raising up my son to be a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles, okay? In fact, uh, so much so that most nights, I'll tell you this is no exaggeration, Micah doesn't ask me for a lullaby to help him sleep. He doesn't ask me to read him a bedtime story. Most nights he will say, Dad, can we watch Darren Sproul's highlights again? And I have to go onto YouTube, I kid you not, and there's a five-minute video of all of Darren Sproul's runs from last year, and that is what helps Micah go to sleep every night. But if you ask Micah what his favorite player on the Eagles is, it's actually not Darren Sproles. It's not Sam Bradford. It's not a famous quarterback or running back or wide receiver. Uh, Micah's favorite player on the Eagles is left tackle Jason Peters, offensive lineman Jason Peters. Now, let me tell you why I think that is. Last summer, after church one Sunday, uh, my family and I went down to the city. We went with Charles and Mike Biscocho and the Welties, and a few of us went down to the city to have lunch, and we went to Vetri Pizza. And outside Vetri Pizza, they had this outdoor seating, and we're all sitting there having lunch when all of a sudden, a six foot four, 300 pound, beautiful man started to walk towards us, okay? He's walking towards us, and all of a sudden, Charles sort of nudges me, and he goes, bro, is that Jason Peters? Now I take one good look and my mouth just the jaw drops and I go, that, that is, bro, that, that's Jason Peters. And now the two of us are sort of hitting back and forth and we're giddy like schoolgirls. Inside we're doing somersaults and cartwheels. We are as happy as can be. And Jason Peters, in all his football glory, is walking right past us. Now here's the one thing. It, Charles and I are sort of introvert one and introvert two. And so Jason Peters is walking past us and we've got our mouths open and we cannot say a word. Like I wish the story was and then we got his autograph and we got season tickets and he came over for lunch. No, nothing happened. Instead he walked past and in fact Charles couldn't totally keep quiet so I kid you not, no exaggeration. As he's walking by, Charles goes, Jason? <laughs> I promise, I'm in church, I promise. He couldn't not say anything, so he goes, Jason, like this, this longing cry, and Jason Peters walked past us, went to a Starbucks, and nothing happened, right? Now, that's terrible. What was even worse is that Shainu and Christy were sitting at the seat, and can, you t can I tell you this? They had no idea who he was. Now, if you're here and you don't know who he is, you should be shamed of yourselves. I won't pick on you, but, but can you imagine? They, they knew something special had happened. They, they knew this was somebody special by our reaction. They were even amazed at the whole moment, but they had no idea who had just passed by, right? And, and I'll tell you, as someone who loves football as much as I am, I'm almost grieved at the hardness of Shainu's heart. I, I want to, like, shake her and say, what will it take? for you to see the greatness of what you just saw, right? Like, do you not see who just passed by? Do you not see who just passed by? Now, I say all that because in our passage today, that is what Mark is asking as well. In fact, in our passage today, listen, Jesus literally walks past his disciples, walks past them in all his divine I am God glory, and they don't get it. They see but they don't really see. And it's almost like Mark wants to grab them by the shoulders and say, what do I have to do for you to see the greatness of who it is that just walked past you? 
Like, when are you going to see? What will it take for you to see Jesus as he really is? For you to recognize who it is that just passed by. That's our story today. So if you've got a Bible, open to Mark 6. We're looking at 45 and onwards, the passage Amy read for us. Let me pray and ask God that we would not miss him, but that we would see him as he passes us by this morning. Let's pray and ask God for help. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word and that you intend to walk past us this morning. And as you do, we pray we wouldn't miss it, but that every eye would see and every mind understand and every heart be soft enough to believe. Let nothing other than that be what happens for every person in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark 6, 45, here's how the story starts. Immediately... He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. That's how the story starts. It starts with immediately. Now Mark says that word all the time, but we're left sort of going, immediately what? Immediately after what? Well, immediately after the story we looked at last week, immediately after, Jesus had taken the five loaves and the two fish and fed the 5,000 men. Immediately after that, Jesus makes his disciples get into the boat while he stays back to dismiss the crowd, and then he goes up to a mountain to pray. Goes up to a mountain to pray. Now, this is the second of three times in the gospel according to Mark where Jesus goes off to pray. You only get three scenes of Jesus praying. And, and all three scenes have Jesus praying off by himself, Usually it's dark, either late at night or early in the morning. Usually Jesus is one place and his disciples are away. And every time it seems like the disciples don't really get Jesus in those scenes when Jesus is praying. For example, the first of these we've already seen. It was back in chapter 1. The scene was Jesus was in Capernaum. He was at Simon Peter and his mother-in-law's house. He had performed this miracle and the entire city shows up at the door. So he could heal the sick and cast out demons. There's sort of this popularity about Jesus that's growing, this frenzy about expectations of what Jesus will be like. And Jesus, that night, goes off in the early morning to pray. Notice that. There's this growing popularity about Jesus, all kinds of expectations about what he'll be like and how he should be. And Jesus withdraws from that crowd and all the popularity goes by himself to pray. In fact, if you remember the story, the disciples find him and say, what are you doing here? Everybody's looking for you. And Jesus responds by saying, let's go to the next towns that I may preach there also. That's why I've come. The second time Jesus prays is here. He's just fed 5,000 again. There's this incredible popularity swirling about. There's this sort of frenzied atmosphere in the crowds. They're excited about what Jesus could do. You imagine in their mind, they're thinking, if he could take some bread and make it this, what could he do perhaps with some swords or spears? You see, what's happening is John, in his account, will tell us that there's sort of a revolutionary spirit growing in the crowd. In fact, in John's account, he makes sure to mention to us the people wanted to make Jesus king. Listen to these two verses from John 6, verse 14 and 15. Right after the feeding of the 5,000, it says, when the people saw the sign, that's the multitudes being fed, that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Then watch this, 15. 
perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That's sort of the scene. And maybe that gives you a hint into why he shooed his disciples away, that they wouldn't be carried away by this contagious spirit in the crowd. And they are offering Jesus a crown when his father had offered him a cross. And so again, in the midst of this popularity and this growing frenzy, Jesus withdraws by himself to pray. The third time will be much later in the account, towards the end. It's actually the night before Jesus is about to die. And he goes off to a garden by himself. And again, the disciples faithlessly are found not standing with him in that hour. And Jesus begins to pray and he wrestles with accepting what his father has for him. The cross that waits for him the following morning. That the mission that God had given him was to die for the sins of the world. To take all that upon him. To be separated from his father. And he looks into that awful cup of God's wrath. And he begins to say, Father, please take this cup away from me. If there's any other possibility... Please let that be. And he begs in prayer, but in that prayer, he begins to align his heart again to his Father's will. Not my will, but yours be done. Again, to align his heart to obey whatever the Father has for him. It seems that there's a common denominator in these three scenes of prayer. That whenever there's the even possibility or potential for Jesus to be sidetracked or derailed from what his Father has for him, Jesus withdraws to pray, to align his heart again, to commit to the Father and to obedience to the Father. The crowd wants to offer him a crown, but his Father had offered him a cross. And so he withdraws to pray again so that he might not be sidetracked or derailed from what his Father has for him. Now, I'll just say one word on that. I would imagine it would be wise for us to take note of Jesus' practice there. right? That's not Mark's main point here, but it would probably serve us well to let Jesus' example instruct us here that when the Son of God Himself felt the potential to be sidetracked from what God had called Him to do, He withdrew to prayer, pressed in to pray. Perhaps that would serve us well when we feel that twinge, that proneness to wander away from the things that God has called us to, that if he withdrew in that moment to pray, to align his heart again to that which the Father had for him, how much more ought we? Right? It's, it's something to notice. Well, the, the Son of God goes up to the mountain to pray. And as he does, he sees his disciples on the sea. And he sees that they're having a rough time on rough seas. Look at verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Jesus is up on the mountainside or on the land, and he's praying, and he looks into the sea, and he sees his disciples, and they're rowing against this wind. They're making headway painfully, the text says. They're having a, an incredibly difficult time. Commentators that I read suggest that from the, some of the time markers in this chapter, some of the clues, where we get the sense that this trip across the sea from one side to the other, which probably should have taken four hours, has at this point probably taken them about eight hours. Eight hours of rowing. Now, I don't know the first thing about rowing, but I read this week 
that rowing may actually be the hardest of all the sports. Right? If you think about it, uh, whereas all the other sports sort of isolate some muscles here and there, rowing has all the muscles of your body used all the time. In fact, they say that to row for six minutes is the equivalent of two basketball games. Right? That 96 minutes of playing basketball is what six minutes of rowing does on your body. And these brothers, in this boat, had been rowing for eight hours. In fact, some translations read this verse, they were straining at the oars. Other translations say they were toiling at rowing. Other translations, they were harassed or tortured in their rowing. So here's the scene. It's the middle of the night. They have been rowing for hours. They barely seem to be getting anywhere. They are making headway painfully. And the wind is against them. This entire experience is incredibly painful. And here's what I want you to notice. Jesus Christ sent them into that. Right? They're not there in the middle of this painful experience because they had rebelled or because they had done something sinful or done something wrong. They are in this experience because, what did he say? Jesus made them get into the boat and go. It's not easy to hear. It's even harder to understand. But it seems as if the text is saying this trial is divinely designed for them, has been divinely prepared for them, that Jesus has reasons why he has set this up and sent them there and intends to do something in the midst of all of this. Now, if, if you're the disciples on their end, can you imagine them straining in the middle of this sea? Back in chapter 4, we had seen a similar scene. They were in a similar boat then. They were on the storm, in the waves. The waves were crashing into the boat. And at that time, Jesus was with them sleeping. And if you remember, their question was, do you not care that we're perishing? Now they're straining, they're toiling, they're being tormented and harassed. And their question, if they asked one, would be, are you even here? He's not even in the boat with them this time. Now, Mark has a bigger point, but I think it'd be worthwhile to pause here to say, I'd imagine that some of us can relate. That some of us know what it's like to be in the middle of the night, to row, and to feel like with all that, you're getting nowhere. To feel like for all that effort and all that progress, there's this wind against you, and you are making headway painfully. For some of you, perhaps it's financial hardship. You've crunched the numbers. You've looked at all of this. And no matter which way you look at it, there's this heavy wind against you. For some of you, perhaps it's a difficult season of marriage. And maybe some of you would take out that word season and say, no, no, no this isn't a season. It's just I'm in a difficult marriage. And there's a, a, a wind against me. No matter how much I seem to be rowing, I don't seem to be making any progress. Maybe some of you are battling addiction. And you don't have any energy left in your muscles. Your lungs are running out of air and you're making headway painfully. Maybe tragedy has hit. Jesus seems to have sent you headlong into this wind that is against you. And you have no idea in the midst of all that where he is. And perhaps the disciples' question from chapter 4 would give voice to your own, some of your own thoughts of, do you not care? Are you aware are you even there? 
And Mark will say to us, not only is he aware, and not only does he care, will you notice in this text, when they can't see him, he can see them. When they don't know where he is, he knows exactly where they are. When they can't get to him, he will come out to them. Jesus sees them, and verse 48, and at about the fourth watch of the night, that's somewhere between 3 and 6 in the morning, somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Take that in for a second. That you're in the middle of the boat and out comes this figure walking on water, treading on the waves as if it was the dry ground beneath your feet right now. Jesus comes walking on the water. Now I read this sermon by a man named Paul Tripp and he had this insight that I thought was particularly insightful. He said this, he said the moment that Jesus walks on the water towards them, it means that he has something more in mind than simply getting them out of the storm. Right? Take that in for a second. The moment Jesus decided to walk on the water, it means that this whole thing, there's an intention that's more than just getting them out of the storm, more than just rescuing them from this painful experience. Because if that was Jesus' goal, Jesus surely could have stood on the shore and simply said, peace, be still. He could have simply shouted, be quiet, like he did in chapter 4, and the waves would have died and the sea would have turned into glass. I mean, perfectly still. If all Jesus intended was to rescue them from this, then he need only to stay on the shore, maybe even on the mountain, and just simply whisper, peace, be still. But Jesus decides to walk on the water towards them, meaning he has more in mind for this encounter than simply to rescue them from this temporary danger that they're in or this turmoil that they're in. His intention is not just to rescue them from this painful experience, but rather to let them better see him in the midst of that painful experience. His intention is bigger and broader than just to pluck them out, but to insert himself in, into that circumstance, into that situation, so that they might more rightly see who he is. So that seeing him, they'd not just see him, but see him as he really is. That's what Jesus wants for them. Now on the one level, on the sort of natural human flesh level, that makes no sense at all. You'd, you'd want to say, just help these brothers out. Take them out of this thing. But by faith, we'd go, this makes perfect sense. What benefit would be if they got to the other side and didn't see Jesus better through that? Then they would be physically safe, but they would spiritually still be in grave danger. They wouldn't have seen Christ right. And in that way, they'd be no different than the crowds who you'll see even at the end of the story. We won't talk through that now. Or the crowds you've seen throughout Mark that want Jesus for the bread he can give or the healing he can provide or for the demon he can cast out, but they don't get Jesus. And Jesus wants more for you, wants more for his disciples than simply to associate with him like the crowds who are out for the stuff they can get from his hand, but Jesus wants to show them who he really is. And so he walks on water. He goes to them. What they need is to see Jesus as he really is. And then, if that's true, what Mark says next is a bit curious. 
a bit puzzling. I, I, at first, at least I didn't understand it. Here's what he says, verse 48. He comes out to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Did you catch that? He meant to pass by them. What does that mean? Because what it sounds like is Jesus intended to sort of slip by the disciples, unseen, but somehow his GPS got wrong and he walked right past them, right? Now, you'd imagine, this is a big, wide lake. If he meant to slip past them, why did he go the route that crosses right in front of them? He, He meant to pass by them. It seems like it's saying Jesus didn't intend for them to see him, but then they saw him, and this whole encounter happened. Sort of like when you see someone in a grocery store and you hope to avoid eye contact, but then you saw them and they saw you seeing them, and now you got to go say hello. It's that kind of thing. Jesus meant to pass by them, but they saw him. And so now what does he got to do? He's got to walk on water towards them. Now, that doesn't make any sense at all, right? It doesn't make sense about who Jesus is. It doesn't make sense about why he'd do this. So, so what's happening here? What does it mean he meant to pass by them, but they... He intended to pass by them, but they, they reacted terrified, thinking he was a ghost. Let's step back for a second. What is Jesus doing here? He's walking on water. Now, can we agree, people don't walk on water. Nobody walks on water. And in fact, the Bible would agree, nobody walks on water except for God. God walks on water. In fact, in the Old Testament, Job, in chapter 9, says God tramples on the seas. He treads the waves. Job talks about God walking on the water. And then Job even says, he passes by me and I see him not. He passes by me and I perceive him not. Job says, there is one who walks on the water. God does. And what's Jesus doing here? Jesus is doing what only God can do. So guess who Mark is saying Jesus is? But not only that, guess what else God does? God doesn't just walk on water. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are scenes where people are in pain and in trial, and God will pass by them. There's a scene where Elijah, the prophet, is going through pain, 1 Kings 19. He thinks he's the only one left who's serving God. People are out to kill him, and in that pain he cries out, and the Lord says to him, you stand tight, I'm about to pass by. And then there's the scene with earthquake and fire and this whisper, and the Lord passes by. Or, Or even more famous, there's this man named Moses. And Moses has this scene where he's in terrible pain because the people of Israel have sinned. God says, I'm not going with my people anymore. Moses cries out, if you don't go with us, I'm not going anywhere. I can't lead these people. You have to come with us. And then he says, let me see you. In fact, let me read you this section from Exodus 33. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, that's the Lord, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, 
I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What does God do? He passes by in all his divine glory. And what's Jesus doing? Jesus is doing what only God can do. Here they are in the midst of this trial and this painful experience and Jesus meant to pass by them walking on the water, doing what only God can do. And if that weren't enough, listen to what he says. They're terrified. They think they've seen a ghost. And Jesus says to them, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Every commentator I've read made one point here to say, you catch that phrase, it is I? It is I, translated in the Greek, is the same phrase in the Old Testament when God revealed, you want to know what my name is? I am who I am. It is I can be translated, I am. I, I am, the one who said, I am who I am. The I am who passed by Moses. Mark is saying, do you now see who Jesus is? You remember how the disciples had asked back in chapter 4 when the stormy waves came and the winds ceased and calmed and they asked, who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey? And Mark 6 is saying, do you see who then this is? Do you see who this is? Only God walks on water and Jesus is walking on water. And only God passes by in all his divine glory and Jesus is passing them by. And only God is the great I am and Jesus shows up and says, don't be afraid, I am is here. Who do you think Mark is saying Jesus is? In fact, Mark is saying, do you get what the disciples are privy to? The I am who passed by Job and he perceived him not. The I am who came at best like a whisper through past Elijah. The I am who told Moses, I will pass by, but you can't see my face and live. No one can, so you can see my back as it passes by. That same I am was now passing by the disciples and they could stare him in the face. I am who I am has come down in his son, in the person Jesus Christ, and they could stare him in the face and they could behold his glory and they were supposed to get in that moment. He's not Elijah. He's the God who appeared to Elijah. The I am has passed by. But watch how the disciples respond. Verse 51. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus gets into the boat. Immediately the winds cease. The choppy waters stop. And the disciples, were told, were utterly astounded. Get that. They were utterly astounded. They were amazed. They were in wonderment. They were bewildered. They were shocked. They were rocked. They were breathless. And Mark doesn't mean any of that as a compliment. Did you catch that? They were beside themselves, amazed and shocked. And Mark doesn't think that was a compliment. Because he tells us they were astounded, verse 52, 
For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. In fact, Mark is saying to us, the reason they were so amazed, so utterly shocked, so astounded, so bewildered, so breathtakingly lost, they still couldn't believe what had happened is because they still yet have not gotten who Jesus really is. If they saw him for who he really was, meaning if they got the miracles, the raising of the dead, the healing of the leper, the shriveled hand that was straightened out, if they got the feeding of the 5,000, if they got the teachings, if they got who Jesus really was, they wouldn't have been so shocked that Jesus could have pulled this off, that Jesus could have walked on water. Almost as if to say, they wouldn't have been so breathless if they knew who he really was. It's like this. It's not a great example. But if LeBron James walked onto a court and hit a free throw, would you be utterly astounded? If somebody saw LeBron James take a basketball and hit a layup, and they ran around the building going, oh my goodness, did you just see him hit a layup? Wouldn't you tap that guy and go, you must not know who that is. This is LeBron James, right? Uh, of course he can hit a layup. Of course he can hit a free throw. You obviously don't know who the man is, right? You wouldn't be utterly shocked. Now, you would be amazed that LeBron James had just walked in. You'd be astounded by him, but you wouldn't be blown away by the fact that he could hit a free throw. What these disciples should have done was worship the one who walked on the water. But because they couldn't yet see who he really was, they were bewildered he could do such a thing. They were amazed, utterly astounded. There's a difference between being amazed and believing in this Jesus and worshiping this Jesus. And Mark tells us the reason they didn't get it, look at 52, was because their hearts were hardened. Friends, that, that phrase should almost punch us in the gut. Did you hear that? That is a very heavy charge. That is a loaded indictment against these disciples. They didn't get who Jesus was because their hearts were hardened. You know, in Mark, who has hard hearts? The Pharisees have hard hearts. We already saw that. In chapter 3, Jesus is in the synagogue. There's a man with a shriveled hand, and they're staring to see if he'll make it straight. And Jesus, in Mark 3, it says, he was angry at them and grieved in his heart because of the hardness of their hearts. The, the bad guys had hard hearts. And here are the twelve in the boat with Jesus, and they don't get who he is because of the hardness of their hearts. One commentator I read, he said a sentence that I think captures it perfectly. He says this, At this stage in Jesus' ministry, the disciples are essentially not different from his opponents, who also fail to recognize his unique character and exhibit hardness of heart. In them was the same lump of bad ingredients that was in the heart of the Pharisees. It means, if you're here and you're a Christian, is this not a reminder to you that you're a Christian not because you were made of some kind of better stock than your unbelieving neighbor? You're a Christian not because there were better ingredients God had to work with than your unbelieving relatives or friends. 
You are here a Christian simply because the Holy Spirit smashed through your stony heart and caused you to see Jesus as he really is. You're a Christian because the Holy Spirit clobbered that hard heart of yours and caused your eyes to really see who he is. And he didn't give up on these disciples. He was going to go through this over and over again. I'm, I'm saying too much. I read that by the end of Mark, they still have hard hearts. After the resurrection, he's talking to them about hard hearts. What manner of persistence does Jesus have with these that he's going to work in them till the Holy Spirit smashes every last bit of that hardness away and causes them to see Jesus Christ. And if you're here, if you're here, and if you were really honest, some of you, and maybe you've never even dared to be this honest. I want you to hear that. Maybe you've never risked being this honest with yourself because it's a scary thing to be this honest. Maybe if you're here, you'd be honest enough to admit I don't know that I'm a Christian as much as I am a churchgoer, right? That's a, that's a hard thing for you to be honest about with yourself. But if you were honest, maybe you'd say, I don't know that I'm a Christian as much as I am a churchgoer. Because would you notice this? These disciples had been with Jesus, been around Jesus more than anyone else. They had heard Jesus say more than anyone had heard him. In fact, they had insider access to teaching from Jesus. Whereas Jesus spoke in parables to the outsiders and left them in the dark, to them he told them the secret things. He revealed everything to them. They had seen miracles no one else had seen. Jesus had walked them into the inner chamber and done things that he had never done before anyone else. They had even done ministry in Jesus' name. They had gone on a missions trip for Jesus. And still... They don't really see Jesus. Is that not a warning to us, to a people who would find themselves in a church building on a Sunday morning? Is that not a caution to us that you could be here and never have missed a Sunday in your life? You could be here and know every Bible story there is to know. You could have even talked to other people about Jesus. You could have served the church. You could have done Christian ministry and still miss Jesus and still not get him. Isn't it a sobering thing that it's possible to love Christian theology and Christian mission and not have a heart for Jesus? Is it, is it not sobering to think that we could love the entrapments around all this stuff rather than the person himself? It's a sobering warning to us about having hard hearts. And so Mark is saying to us this morning, what will it take for you to see him? What will it take for you to see him as he really is? What will it take for you to see that Jesus is God? The God who passed by in all his glory, the one that no one could look at and live, had become human and passed by. And he had come and resisted the temptation to take up their crown because the Father had for him a cross. And he set himself to take that cross for you. What will it take for you to see that? And not just be at a distance amazed by that, but see it till your heart is ravaged by that and changed by that and absorbed by that. Till you're not just amazed by these stories, but till you yourself worship the one who actually came and did that for you. 
What will it take for you to see the one who came and took the cross so that he might not pull you temporarily out of a physical danger, but pull you eternally out of the spiritual danger? What will it see, take for you to see that if you can trust him to pull you out of your eternal torment, your eternal toil, then you can trust him for all the temporary toils that come as well. What will it take, Mark wants to know, for you to see Jesus? Mark is saying to us this morning, through this, through this story, Jesus Christ is passing by. Don't miss him this morning. Let's pray together.